welcome to Day Live by Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy, and I am joined, as always, by my co-hosts Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. How are we doing today, guys? Good, are you? I am very well. Chris, how are you doing? Doing great. Um, I said that last uh, time was going to be the Tooth Extraction Edition. Uh, I think this time is the COVID Scare Edition. Zach, how are you doing? Uh, so far, so good. We'll, uh, we'll see. I, you know, I have this thing every morning now where I go up and find like something with fragrance. It's the first thing I do every morning. Like, okay, my ability to smell is still here and taste. So I, I do that every time I wake up now. Um, if you do test positive, uh, I'd be curious to see which variant is because now there's like there's like three variants in the U.S. Right? Uh, I'll probably get the one they're not vaccinating for. <laughs> That's the way it goes. It's uh, uh, yeah, it's becoming like a true horror film. But uh, hope hope you don't have it. Ah, uh, thank you. I appreciate it. Our thoughts go out to Zach, of course. Uh, so this this week we're actually going to shake it up a little. And uh, normally we do our collection corner right slap bang in the middle of the podcast. But Chris is just so excited to tell us about what he's done. We're, we're going to move it right up to the front. So, Chris, you take it over from here for the collection corner. Awesome. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So a um, couple things. Um, first of all, market. Uh, where, what day are we at here? This is February, January 31st, 2021. We're officially all region free. I don't have the, my player yet. It's in the mail. Um, so. Super dangerous for me, like I said last time, but I bit the bullet. And the first thing I did was found a, um, a limited edition um, uh, Vengeance trilogy that Arrow put out. Not the one that was like the reasonably priced one. I went and found the out of print limited edition one that folded up like a um, like it had two doors that folded. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's the one. Um, I just got it the other day, too. <laughs> oh, shit, it's kind of expensive, but that's okay. <laughs> Um, that's the theme for this week is it's kind of expensive because <laughs> I also found, um, I, I mentioned, um, a few weeks back, we were talking about different releases. I think, oh, it was when we were doing favorite releases from each, uh, label for, for 2020. And I mentioned Frank Hennenlauter's on the board for, uh, Agfam. And I also realized that I never had actually splurged for the brain damage, uh, limited edition set that Arrow put out. And, um, it's a hell of a splurge. I think. I think it's over $100 I spent on this. I'm going to be totally honest with y'all. But I love Frank Hennenlauter. He's a wacky, wacky dude. Um, uh, and, um, I, you know, he's really kind of one of the the, the premier kind of art, artists in that low-budget horror genre. Um, so very happy to get that. And then, Adam, based on your recommendation, I was lucky to find a Region A of the um, Survivor Ballads that you mentioned with um, – with the raven on the cover. I, I'm realizing I'm holding these up to the camera and the Zoom chat as if that's going to mean anything. <laughs> I enjoy seeing it. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, and then, um, yeah, that's it. I, I think what I'm going to try to bring next time, um, there's a couple labels where I'm trying to go complete with or, or ones that I already have come complete with, like smaller ones, not like Criterion, but um, I think that's what I'm going to talk about next time. But for now, uh, yeah, that's it. I, I'm... I'm a little bit nervous to see what's in store for me because, you know, my eyes started to drift a little bit into that second sight, Dawn of the Dead, and I've uh, I've, I've restrained myself as of yet, but uh, it's a beautiful-looking box set, so we'll see how long I can hold out. I'm going to just send you some pictures of it, like, <laughs> consistently. Like, look look at it, Chris. Look. You know that you know that recurring meme of, like, the guy walking with his girlfriend and then there's another lady, like, in, in the photograph, <laughs> and he, likes looking back? That's, like, the one he's – his girlfriend is, like, Region A. 
And then the, the one that he's like cheating on is all the all regions. That's what I feel like. <laughs> to be fair, Second Sight put out some great stuff. I only have one of their editions. I have the limited edition of Walkabout that oh, they put out. It includes the original novella, includes the script. Yeah, it's a really... I haven't actually gotten around to watching the film yet, which is always something that always happens when you buy a load of crap. But um, the set the set is gorgeous, so... Yeah, that's that's a really good release from Second Side. I, I need to buy more of their stuff because they do put out some really, really nice additions. Well, yeah, that's great. Thanks. What about y'all? How's y'all's week or well, two I, weeks I, in here? I suppose I'll, I'll keep the theme going with region-free stuff because I went region-free um, just before Christmas. And uh, <laughs> I'm, on, I'm on a quest to find the most time-efficient way of getting region A's over to Ireland, which is... I've been doing experiments with ordering from different places and having various results. So it started off with me ordering from a website called WowHD, which I had ordered from before when I had first sort of went to go and try and um, try and jailbreak my old PS3 to try and turn that all region. And I just, it was just too complicated, so I didn't bother. But when I ordered from them that time, I ordered at Grand Budapest Hotel and it only took about two weeks. So I thought, oh, great, perfect. I'll just use them in future. So I ordered on on Christmas Eve, in fact, I ordered uh, Hitchcock's Notorious and The Samurai because both of them don't have Region B Blu-rays, which is pretty much the only reason why I'm going to be sort of buying Region A's if they don't have a Region B Blu-ray. Um, and they have not arrived yet. They're still in limbo somewhere. Uh, over a month now and it's getting a bit crazy so about 10 days ago or so well on the yeah on the 20th of january i said okay let me try amazon uh, i'm gonna try to do some orders on amazon.com obviously well hd a free delivery which is sort of why i attempted to go with them but obviously you get what you pay for it free delivery uh, with amazon the delivery cost me about 15 euro um to deliver two blu-rays which is hitchcock's rebecca and uh, Blue Velvet, because again, neither of those have Region B Blu-rays. Um, and they arrived in Ireland on Friday, so I should have them on Monday or Tuesday if everything goes to plan with the post. So a hell of a lot quicker turnaround time. And then I was talking to some guys on Reddit. Another Irish guy actually put a question in the sub asking you know, where to order stuff from. And I'd said Amazon, based on my just experience in the last couple of weeks. And another guy came in and said, oh, you should try Deep Discount because they deliver to Ireland. And I didn't realize that Deep Discount delivered to Ireland. So uh, yesterday I ordered Rosemary's Baby, um, which again doesn't have a Blu-ray in Region B. So I will I will be testing how fast that gets to Ireland. And then I'll just be deciding between the three, which I go with in the future for my for my Region A criterions. Wow, that's great. Like I feel like Deep Discount really is a throwback for me. They were like the original Amazon for, for movies back in the early 2000s. Their website looks like it's from the early 2000s. It's so bare bones. Yeah. Which I'm a little pissed at Deep Discount. Um, they had made a price mistake um, about, a, about three oh, weeks ago yes. for the Hammer films. And uh, yeah, then they sent me an email saying, yeah, you're not getting that pretty much. I was like, thanks. I it's appreciate all- it. It seemed to be pretty random. Some people they went through if they paid with PayPal and then other people it got cancelled. It's a like I don't know how this how this works in America in terms of like your consumer law, but that shit would not fly in Ireland if it, if they advertise that price. That yeah, I've never had that happen. Uh, I'm not sure because and then I heard Amazon did something sort of similar because they put uh, Rad up for like ten bucks and a bunch of people ordered it. And I know I have a friend who lives down the road. He said he did it and they canceled his and didn't even tell him. 
it's just not on his orders anymore. Yeah, like, Amazon's notorious. Yeah, they're notorious for overselling pre-orders too. They like mm-hmm. it's like where they overbook flights on airlines sometimes. Like Amazon, it's really dangerous to order pre-orders from them. Um, I've had I've had one that just they just didn't get. <laughs> and like, yeah, the, well, the last one I got, I got the Trimmers Arrow um, set. And I pre-ordered it and it didn't come when it was supposed to. And I was just really just trying to make sure I was going to get it. So I like called them and got redirected to South Africa for some reason. Um, And they kind of went through and they gave me 20 bucks. They said, Hey, it'll be here next week, but here's $20. I was like, cool. Thanks. I'm not going (laughs) to complain if as long as it shows up. (laughs) Yeah. God, deep discount throws back some memories though. There used to be a site called DVD talk. And then there's another one called the Digital Bits. Mm-hmm. I would go back and forth between the digitalbits.com, dvdtalk.com, and then Ain't It Cool News. I don't know if y'all remember that site. And then Deep Discount as well. Like that's where I learned about movies. And then I would go buy a deep discount, whatever they recommended. <laughs> that was like that was like three years of my life. Um, anyways. Now everything's Blu-ray.com. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. Well, get into Blu-ray.com. Because just again, I just don't like to look at a website. Oh, it's a ter- it's terrible design. <laughs> I mean, in all fairness, though, like Reddit and Discord are both U- not necessarily UI friendly, right? They're no. we we spend most of our lives on sites that are very basic. <laughs> at least they have apps. So, like I I, I never use the no. Reddit website desktop website. I just use the app on my phone. I never the only time I've ever used Reddit on my computer was. Um, do you remember before Christmas there was a few posts about the or Criterion's Map of World Cinema posts? Mm-hmm. That that was me. Um, I oh, was doing okay. those, um, and then things just got way too busy for me to continue. Um, but yeah, that's the only time I was using Reddit on my computer because I was obviously I was putting everything together in Excel sheets and stuff, and yeah. it was just easier to transfer it all from my computer rather than from my phone. We'll keep going on those if you can get them. Those are those are cool. Yeah, I like those posts. I remember those. It's been a while. Yeah, I, I see. I got it started really well with like the high engagement, and I just kind of realized then how much people on the Criterion subreddit just just talk nonsense about knowing about films. Because the more the the sort of more um, what's the word? I don't know. Just the further from away from America I got with like my top ten lists, the smaller the engagement was, and the smaller the the size of the list people were posting. And I kind of realized like. How have people not seen ten Japanese films? And I'm like, oh, maybe, maybe a lot of people on this sub just don't watch as much films as other people do. I I think there's a lot of we can. That's another podcast. I think there's a lot of voyeurs on uh, on Reddit just in general, even boutique Blu-ray. I don't think there's a lot of people that actually like just watch a ton of film. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, Reddit, of course, has its hive mind problem. It always has. It's, you know, Mm. certain philosophies get thrown into certain subreddits, and if you go against that, then you're downvoted. Um, You know, I get that every time I bring up, um, you know, anytime I'm, the discussion of Criterion should go 4K, should go up. And I'm I'm not even in like a super camp that says it's ridiculous that they don't. I was like, you know, every other boutique's moved there. Maybe they should do it to downvote it every time. I'm like, okay, Just we're not going to discuss it. it. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, we're not going to discuss the 4K thing. I got it. Oh, that's interesting. People people get mad when you bring it up. Well, I, you know, usually the discussion's already started, and I just kind of go in, you know, bring in my point that you know, Eureka, um, Arrow, Scream. Um, 
Vinegar, um, Severon, they've all went 4K. Um, and it's like, I think I think all of them have. I, I have to recheck, but I don't think you're almost right every boutique has went 4K in some way. Um, and they're kind of the last one. And I, I guess for me, when you, know, you, when you think of Criterion, it's like, ah, oh, best format, you know, best picture quality. And it's like, well, they're kind of getting behind on the new format. And I get it. It's expensive format, but it's like, I mean... There's there's been few on these smaller boutiques that have been able to do it. Kino's doing it now. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I know we got to jump into the film, but just one one more thing I was thinking of when you when you brought that up about picture quality. Um, I was really proud because one of the things I've been working on in the last like I guess two years or so is kind of filling in the out of print Criterion releases, mm-hmm. hopefully the early ones, which are mostly DVDs. And uh, we're talking about the Samurai series. You know, Adam, we were we were chatting on Discord. I, I watched the first one as well, or rewatched the first one as well. That picture quality is not good. That's even worse for the second one, dude. Really? Second one, I was really disappointed. Because I think the first one, it has, even though it's not like super HD, it has like this nice film grain charm to it. Yeah. Second one, second one. It's kind of weird. They flip. The first one, really poor writing, really nice looking. Second one, yeah. not very nice looking, but much better writing. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, I was surprised to see that. Um, so I guess uh, thank you for. Oh, I'll brace myself now when I when I get back to the second one. But it, it looks like a VHS copy. Yeah, there's there's one particular scene in question where they're like having a showdown at a bridge, and it's like they wanted to make it a nighttime scene, but they didn't shoot it at nighttime, and they just sort of try and darken it in post, and it just looks terrible. Okay. And the sound isn't good either. It has like every time someone talks, you can hear like the kind of distortion. Um, so it's not the best transfer in the world, but hey ho. Um, I suppose we, before we move on to discussing the films, and Zach, was there any pickups you had um, in the last little while? Uh, yeah, I've uh, recently this week I have decided I'm going to finish up my John Carpenter collection. Uh, I had like half of everything I needed, and I was like, you know what? It's time for me to go waste a bunch of money. Um, <laughs> I had actually put it on hold because Scream Factory was putting out like all of his stuff on Steelbook. And I'd had them. I have them all. Um, and I was like, well, I'm not going to get in Mouth of Madness until that comes out on steel. Well, that was two years ago. So it ain't coming probably. Or once I actually get it, it it'll be announced. One of the other. Right, yeah. yeah. Wasn't one of his films just released on 4K recently. Um, actually, France. I think it's France. I, I don't know which country I do, but I'm going to get it from FNAC or whatever. Um, they have four of them that have gotten 4K, which is... Uh, Escape from New York, The Fog, They Live, and Prince of Darkness. That's the one. And That's the one I saw. Got, yeah, for. and now Scream is actually released They Live and Prince of Darkness in 4K, but not in steel. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, they're, they're, going through, that's, um, they're going through doing that. Um, so, you know, as soon as I finish this Carpenter collection, it'll continue. But I decided to order from Amazon Japan for the first time. Um, and I'm getting his, a really nice box set. I don't know who makes it. I don't know much about Japanese releases. But uh, it's for his first film, Dark Star, which was a student film turned into a feature-length film. I have never seen it. It's probably the only Carpenter film I've never watched. Um, but, yeah, uh, it, it has a bunch of different stuff with it. It looks like, you know, I've always heard Japan releases are always really nice. They put a lot of work into them. So I'm excited to get it. We'll see how long shipping takes. Probably a month. All right, so for our first film, we're going to be talking about Elevator to the Gallows, a 1958 French film about a self-assured businessman murders his employer, the husband of his mistress, which (laughs) unintentionally provokes an ill-fated chain of events. All right, so uh, what'd you guys think? 
you can you can definitely say that for sure in terms of the chain of events. It, yeah. It, it, yeah, it's like I really like the film. I, I like I like Louis Mal in general. Um, I think he's a really he's a really intelligent filmmaker. I think someone said he made this when he was twenty four, uh, which in itself is like insane. It just that's just insane to me to think that this dude. Uh, was able to put together something so assured uh, at such a young age. Um, he's clearly a smart guy. He clearly knows a lot about cinema, uh, crime cinema, film noir, especially. Um, yeah, I, I really liked the film. Um, I, I, this wasn't my first time seeing it. I watched it, uh, I want to say maybe back in June or July, sort of early summer, and I loved it then. I didn't love it as much this time, the second time around, um, but it's still the film is still really, really, really freaking cool. I just want to know how a 24-year-old in France in the – what year did this come out? This came out in 58? 58, yeah. Knows Miles Davis. Yeah. <laughs> how did he swing that shit? Like, 58 – like, actually, I never even thought to look this up in terms of Miles Davis. Like, how into his career – I assume Miles Davis is well into his career at this point. When did when did Kind of Blue come out? Yeah, I was just looking at it. I was just about to look at it. Um, who can – 1959. Oh, okay. So Miles probably hadn't popped yet because Kind of Blue was kind of like his that was yeah. like his magnum opus, really. Like, but even that, like, like how did he? Like, it's just this weird chain of events. Like we were talking about uh, the the reality of um, Agnes Varda being in you know the Bay Area for for to be able to record her short film um, about Black Panthers a few weeks back, and like. It's kind of the same thing. Like, how did they know that Miles Davis was like the one of the big, greatest jazz, you know, recording artists ever, <laughs> and like, and have access to him at twenty four? It's just this crazy. I don't know what was happening in France in the in the fifties and sixties. It's just amazing. Yeah, that's insane. I didn't actually consider that. Like, obviously, the score is what a lot of people sort of remember the film by, and for good reason. The score is incredible. I listened to it. I've listened to it before we we watched this film. I listened to it since we've watched the film. It's a really incredible score. It's so moody. It's just the moodiest bluesy score. Um, oh, I know. I I know why. Sorry, sorry to cut you off. Because he had already put out "Birth of the Cool." Oh I, yes. I bet you that probably made its way to to France. I bet you that would have. Jazz or France are super into their jazz anyway. So. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think just I think someone mentioned it in in their in their discussion about the the sort of European cafe scene um, was obviously huge at that time, but it's still mind blowing that you can that at twenty four making I assume was sort of largely independent because I I don't see how we could have secured major funds to make this film at twenty four either with no sort of prior films right. It's just it's still crazy to think he could have got Miles Davis to go and score his film. Yeah, crazy. Um, anyways, I, it's you know I, who knows. It's 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 maybe better left to the imagination. But uh, as far as the film itself, I I had seen uh, Zazie Dan Le Metro about two weeks before I saw this, just by total coincidence. So I'm not gonna lie, I was a bit surprised at how different those films are. But it kind of made me love it even more. Um, you know, I, I'm always impressed with with directors that sort of can play between genres, and and they just seem to be you know, competent directors that, that just kind of know how to tell a story and, and it almost doesn't matter the genre. Um, I think, I, I don't, I'm not going to try to draw comparisons between those films. They're so different. Uh, but, 
you know, maybe just his his fluidness between genres and an ability to kind of take some risks. You know, I think this film jumped out to me just for um, being very creative. You know, if you can kind of let logic, uh, leave logic aside in terms of the the likelihood that all of these things would happen in the same night around the same time for there to be this other young kid that was, you know, kind of wanting to feel rebellious and steal his car for the two minutes that he was supposed to run upstairs. And in those two minutes, the elevator gets turned off. Like, like all of those things that, you know, they're probably not going to happen right around the same time. But if you can leave that aside for a second and just go with it, like it's a really creative and kind of well-written, you know, series of events that, that all tie in together um, and make it a, a very entertaining watch. I think they balanced everything well. It's the, it's the key part here. You essentially have three sort of linear stories that are sort of going alongside each other. Obviously, the businessman who's stuck in the elevator, um, the you know his mistress, or Jean Moreau doing Jean Moreau best of moodily walking around Par- Parisian streets. Uh, I assume it's Paris. I don't know if they ever say for sure, but I assume it's Paris. Uh, just her walking around moody, just doing her thing. And yeah. then you have obviously the two kids who who go on their sort of Bonnie and Clyde esque crime spree. Um, yeah, and the fact that they balance all three stories, like you never really feel anyone's been underutilized, or that anyone sort of overstays their welcome either. I think the pacing of the film, um, for it's it's not even that long. It's about, I think it's pretty much like ninety minutes on the dot. Um, the pacing of the film with the three stories really really well done. Well, going back to uh, what you were talking about, like not anyone ever staying there welcome. Um, one thing I thought was interesting is you kind of assume, I can't remember his name right now, but the the guy who killed What's-His-Face at the beginning, um, you kind of assume he's going to take up a big chunk of the runtime. Because, I mean, that's who you start with. You're kind of put in his perspective. And really, they use what's necessary of him, and then he shows up a little bit more. You know, he he shows up in quick flashes and then he shows up a little bit more towards the end after he gets out of the elevator. Um, but no, I mean, I mean, I think the assumption would be try to use him as much as possible. But I kind of actually enjoyed that they didn't overuse him at all. I think it's kind of like um, and we can we can talk a little bit more about his context as a French New Wave film, because one could argue it's probably the first French New Wave film just in terms of timelines, because the film that's arguably called the first French New Wave film is Chabrol's uh, Le Beau Surge, but this actually came out about six months earlier than that. I think it sort of harks into what Godard and Truffaut would do later, especially with Truffaut would shoot the piano player. Uh, we, we talked about how the main character in that clearly didn't want to be in a film noir. And in this film, Louis Mal almost takes his main character out of the reckoning, whereas in a normal film noir, you would follow that character, but instead he sort of it takes him out of action within the first 10 minutes of the film and and sort of turns other things on its head you know jean moreau who you could who you could claim is like a femme fatale you know she's morally gray well i suppose technically she's not even morally gray she planned to kill her husband uh, with her with, with the guy she's she's sort of sleeping with um but you know she you could call her the femme fatale it's it's sort of like what what truffaut and godard would do later in a few years time with taking noir tropes and sort of uh, inverting them slightly, um, Louis Mal does here as well. Yeah, I, I also like the kind of mythical status that Tavernier had in the story. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that people 
like he, his character kept coming up. You're right, Zach. Like the story didn't centralize on him, but I like that the way that they kind of talked about him was this sort of like you know he was this war hero and he was this kind of like larger than life character and like you know he's the type of guy that is like Liam Neeson and Taken, right? Like nothing goes wrong for this character, and he gets bested by an elevator and somebody leaving for the building for the day just by you know total coincidence shutting the power off. And that foils like this perfectly laid plan, uh, and, and I thought that was a nice kind of kind of touch because then you then it show it follows these two kind of knuckle headed kids, and they almost get away with extremely sloppy crime, like they're on the opposite end of planning. They're just kind of completely going by the seat of their pants, and and like they almost get away with it, you know. Uh, eventually, fate and and luck kind of catches up with them because they're idiots. But like they those two extremes i thought were fun to kind of watch and play against each other because one had the perfect plan and just got interrupted because somebody knocked on the door before he had a chance to take the rope down <clears throat> so that's the whole reason like the whole story kind of unfolded was that he got interrupted from his plan and then the two kids that were just kind of kind of winging it um they they almost got away with it and as well except for you know just one one thing here and there that they kind of got in the way so I, it almost had like a I don't want to make too much out of it. I think it was a lighter film, but it almost had kind of a that same philosophical thing that seems to be running through a lot of uh, new wave films of, of like life is just kind of unpredictable and 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 you know um, we were going to talk about shoot the piano player. We were talking about how it's uh, I'm trying to think of the word now. It's escaping me. But um, anyways, yeah, like so there's there's elements of life you just can't control, and uh, I think that was a big theme here. Absolutely. Yeah. Um... I like this actually a lot more than I thought I would. Um, it's actually from since I've been on the podcast, I know I missed the very first episode. This has actually probably been my favorite of what we've watched. Um, I just, yeah, there's definitely some, you know, logical inconsistencies. There's small things like that, but I just really appreciate any script that any, you know, most scripts should do this. They just don't do it well as the setup and payoff. And, I think he do, they do that in this film really well. Sometimes it goes in a predictable way, but I'd rather them go in a predictable way, set up and pay off, than just try to subvert the expectation. We know the camera's going to come back and play. We know how the, him leaving the, his jacket and the gun are going to come back and play. I mean, you know, you can see where it's going, but it feels kind of almost like a cathartic watch because you're like, okay, I can map this out too, and it's kind of fun to do that. Mm-hmm. Did either one of y'all read the novel by chance? No, I didn't no. even know it was based on a novel. I'm not going to lie. That's okay. I, I I was just curious to, uh, yeah, just on the off chance, because it kind of made me want to read it to see how much there was, uh, you know, artistic kind of freedom taken or or if this was the story of the novel. Because I can imagine if you if you had read this novel and like this is the story in the in the book, then it would have felt like an exciting one to tell on screen. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose sort of goes down like again we can't really say too much if none of us have read it and we don't really know how much it sticks but uh, um if it was that kind of novel where each chapter is told from different points of view they definitely did a good job of um of sort of moving that to screen um you know with the pacing and sort of jumping between the different uh, of the three stories uh, that were coming through but with, yeah. with this one with this one even though especially sort of compared to maybe American cinema uh, at the time, especially American crime cinema, which is sort of coming towards the end of the film noir era at this stage. 
it's still a lot more anarchic than what you would expect from something in American American crime film in terms of its structure and maybe its sort of plot points and you know how it doesn't have a have its leading man front and center trying to sort of solve the problem and this is where I start to think where it sort of comes into the the French New Wave and and what they were and what they were you know hoping to achieve by taking cinematic tropes and and sort of inverting them or trying to flip them or just trying to change them up um it, it's not as anarchic as like you know Godard or something like Shoot the Piano Player or something like that it's still at heart a very much a, a crime film um but it's just there's just something something obscure about how Mal tells the story um and I know that we've we've talked we've watched we've watched two French New Wave films now uh Hiroshima Mon Amour and shoot the piano player obviously this one is a lot more like shoot the piano player just in terms of a genre but i I, i'm gonna keep saying this i've said this in a couple of podcasts now where we've brought it up but i think it really harks to the the um what's the word the variety with what you get with french new wave um I suppose you brought up zazidan la metro so i suppose that's actually a perfect comparison as well it's the same filmmaker a few years apart part of this same movement and Zazidan La Metro is like running through a candy store um, while you're already had so much sugar and this film is just kind of like sitting having a whiskey in a dark alley somewhere it's just completely different moods um, but obviously same filmmaker same technically film film movement like would you would you would you call this film a French New Wave film or would you would you more sort of link it with sort of 50s crime films that Melville was doing because there's a lot of melville in this as well so where, where would you guys put this maybe on the on the threshold between the two well i'm gonna let you guys take this one i am very uh not very keen on a uh, french new wave i don't know much about it at all no it's it's good uh, you know that there's uh, somebody in our discord brought up the idea of bob le flambeur even being a possible french new wave and and um i you know, the line starts to get a little bit blurry when you really break down kind of the core elements of what they were trying to do, right? Like he, uh, um, Louis Malle didn't seem to be part of the left bank crew. No. And he wasn't part of the, the cinema journal that, that a lot of the kind of known directors came out of. So here's this kind of guy like lonely on an island here, just making super interesting films. But um, for I, yeah, I mean, I, I think it it doesn't go into like an official movement, but it certainly feels like the same style and like maybe, you know, there, there must've been something in the water in France, just if they weren't talking and, and didn't know each other, because here's another guy that came out and sort of made some very creative genre films that were playing against, um, playing against the expectations of the genre. You know, you could even make an argument that the Miles Davis soundtrack didn't really fit the movie that well, but it, in a weird way it did like like i don't i think it was mostly improv i hope i got that right um and it kind of felt that way like i don't know that the music always supported the film in in, in the way that scores typically do but even in that it kind of felt anarchic and fun and, and a little bit just unpredictable and kind of exciting so yeah i mean i i would i would definitely put this in and uh into that category if, if anybody's asking my opinion <laughs> um um 
it, it feels it just feels like the same uh, like like the same you know goal and kind of mission uh of what a lot of those other filmmakers were doing what about you adam yeah no i, I agree with you on that point um, I do, I, I do sort of uh, see where that, whoever that was, it could have even been me, because uh, I do definitely see a lot of French New Wave nuances with Bob Le Flambeur. I'm not going to call it a French New Wave film, but there's a lot of nuances with, with how Melville makes that film, um, mm-hmm. and you know some of the decisions he made with with plot devices and things like that. There's certainly a lot of nuances there that can put it into French New Wave, and I think this one is sort of the same. It's not quite as anarchic, um, but it does enough with the inversion of tropes that I think it, yeah, for me, I would, I would call it the first French New Wave film. If if someone was to press me for a number one, what was the very first one that that sort of embodies the the movement? And I would say Elevator to the Gallows. I, I, I wouldn't argue with that. I just would argue that John Pierre Melville had the coolest sunglasses in every picture that he was in. <laughs> and it might not be giving credit to his sunglasses. I need to look that up now. Uh... <laughs> you know, uh, this is completely random. It's just the whole time when I was watching the movie, I kept having to remember that France still had the guillotine at this point. And for some reason, it just... I don't know. It's like something weird. I'm like, I didn't wouldn't have even imagined they'd still have it, but apparently they had it to like the 1970s. Yeah, because they kept talking about like, oh, my head's gonna roll, and I'm like, wait, are they not using like a noose at this point? I was like, oh, they just kept that thing around. That's kind of awesome. Maybe Oshima saw this and was inspired to make Death by Hanging. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) don't know how you can make Death by Hanging with a. (laughs) <laughs> with a guillotine <laughs> just be a, a, a head on its own just a head talking I'm not, I am not R what the, like a scene at a house or something <laughs> uh, one thing I did notice and I, I'm, I'm, I guess I could be a little bit more noticeable and stuff like this and I guess it does come from him being young there were some weird editing choices I don't know if they ever like stuck out to you guys or not and one that really stuck out to me is such an odd choice and I, I just feel like it just wasn't set up the right way there's a part where he's finally able to open the door, like in the elevator, and he's to look out. And he can't go through it, obviously, but he can look out. And then the scene immediately cuts to his mistress looking through the gate, and it almost makes it look like that's what he sees because it shows him looking, yeah. and then it cuts to her looking on the other side. And I'm like, and it, it kind of took me out for a second because I was trying to figure out because figure out the layout of the building. I guess I was like, can they see each other? But I, I did notice a few little things like that, which I, I don't know. Maybe it was just me. It just kind of stuck out to me, and it might be where he was young at the time. He was like, you said 24, right? Yeah, 24 when he made this. And it was just, I think this was his first feature. Um, it, it definitely could be that. I know Goddard used to do that a lot with his breaking of the... Uh, do you guys know about the 180-degree rule in film mm-hmm. editing? So you're never supposed to break... The, like if you talk, If you think of a scene where characters are talking to one another... So your characters will always be looking one way, and mm-hmm. they should they should never you should never be looking at the other side of their face at any point during the scene. So you should always stay within 180 degrees. So if you have two characters and one say character A is looking right and character B is looking left, you should never move the camera to the other side of their head so that ca- so that person A is now looking left and person B is now looking right. It's called mm-hmm. the 180 degree rule in film. I know Goddard used to love breaking that and sort of other sort of filmmaking conventions. So 
maybe we'll say he was trying to break uh, an editing convention, uh, convention, but uh, I think it's probably just more so a case of just being a bit inexperienced. I suppose one one other just uh, quick French New Wave little fun fact, or I don't know if you noticed this, Chris, because uh, I know that you're a fan of this film. Did you notice a certain actor as a hotel guest in Elevator to Gallows, one of the guys who was playing chess? Oh, uh, I, no, I guess I don't have this handy, but I'm looking it up right now to see if I can. But go ahead. What, what is it? It is uh, Jean-Claude Brerly, who from oh, A Woman oh. is a Woman. Makes Anna, an unedited appearance August. You're right. Anna wow. Karina's boyfriend from A Woman is a Woman, uh, yeah. which is a great Goddard film, which is my, my favorite Goddard film. Um, yeah, he just wanted, he's one of the guys who's, who's playing chess uh, and one of the witnesses. One of the greatest actors to be uh, uh, playing, playing chess. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, just, I just noticed that. I thought it was cool. And I, I know that you're a fan of that film as well. So I just wanted to see if you noticed that as well. Embarrassed to say I didn't. But yeah, up until I recently reordered my top 100, that was in my top four. So I love that movie a lot. Oh, it's a great, great little movie. It's just, it's such a sweet film. Um, you can't really hate it. And talking about genre, I know this isn't, we're not talking about a woman as a woman, but like just, it's one of my favorite ones of fully diving into a musical, in this case, you know, just a genre, in this case, it's musicals, and there's no music in it, but it's like, you would still leave feeling like you're watching a musical. Yeah, it has the, has the, that sort of jovial atmosphere. I think Anna Karina sings one song in the whole film, and that's like when she's doing her striptease routine, because that's her job. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, that's it. Like, so it's weird that you'd call it a musical when there's practically no music in it at all. Um, I wish that was on the channel so I could put it in a vote one time because uh, I think more people should watch it. Oh, so good. If I can convince one person to watch Blade Runner, then uh, that's my job good. done. What did you think about 2049? Just curious. I, ha- I haven't watched it. I haven't watched you it. Watch 2049 I, yet? I, I've seen Blade Runner about easily and i'm not even exaggerating at this point because when i first when i first got the the dvd when i was 16 i watched it like so often i say i've easily seen blade runner about 25 times and i haven't watched it in about seven years because i just used to watch it like back to back when i was like 16 17 when i was first getting into film and i haven't watched it in about seven years and i thought oh maybe i'm gonna sort of say this all again when we're, when we're going into this um but i was afraid i wasn't gonna like it as much but jesus i fucking love blade runner it's such a good film are you um, watching Final Cut? Oh yeah, Final Cut always. Yeah, I was like, okay. Always I know Final it. I, I can't remember when it finally came out, so I was like, I didn't know if you'd seen it yet or not. Yeah, yeah, no. It, that that was, well, I, I I recently upgraded the Blu-ray like last year, and then I still hadn't gotten around to watching it. Actually, I still have the DVD I bought when I was sixteen on my shelf somewhere, but then I upgraded <laughs> it to Blu-ray. But like, I've seen, I've seen the making of Blade Runner the Dangerous Days documentary more than I've seen like other films. <laughs> like I've watched that. Doc- that's like. That's like the film. That's like the making of documentary for me. It's so good. It's so in because I had such a troubled production. It's such an interesting uh, making of. If you have the final cut on Blu-ray, you more than likely have that documentary on the disc. It's so good. It's called Dangerous Days: The Making of Blade Runner. Okay, and I'm gonna watch that next time. Ah, uh, it's then. it's stupid good. The the making of is just so interesting. Just about how like they like David Lynch was linked at some point, but then and then they wanted. Uh, Ridley Scott at the time Ridley Scott was linked to Dune and then it sort of switched and David Lynch went to Dune and then they were able to get Ridley Scott in and they had so many different actors that they wanted in the main role till they went for Harrison Ford probably the most famous be Dustin Hoffman 
there's even like storyboards where the and they drew Dustin Hoffman in the storyboard. That's how sure they were gonna get Dustin Hoffman in the role. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just it's such an interesting. Um, just the whole production of that film is just super interesting to me. Um, but yeah, that brings me back to the point. No, I haven't seen Twenty Forty Nine. I need to. I, I need to remedy like, that. I mean, I, a lot of people, I think, a, a little bit overpraise it. Um, but I, I do like it. I, I think I that's think just that in Nueva in general. People just yeah. he's like the, he's like the new Chris Nolan. Everyone just like loves him, and then they'll probably now hate him after Dune. They'll probably go like the Chris oh, yeah. Nolan route. I feel bad for Chris Nolan because I do have a soft spot for him. I, I like I, I like Nolan. Um, yeah, I, I don't think any of his films are perfect. I think they're all like heavily flawed. But I appreciate that he. The ambition. I appreciate the ambition every time I watch yeah. this. <laughs> I like my experience with Nolan is like uh, Memento and following, like those early films when I was working at Blockbuster and those would come out. And um, I mean, I know he's gone on to obviously like in the Dark Knight series and stuff, but just like I think he's a very creative uh, voice and kind of storytelling, mm-hmm. and I think he's willing to take big risks and stuff. So I'll always, I'll always defend him for that. I. I think, he's the I only think, person who could come up with a new IP and get paid two hundred million dollars for it. Oh yeah, like Warner Brothers, they don't care. Like they will just give him any any of the money he wants, which I think now is it's what's hampered him Except in his last couple of films because he has too much he can do. He, like he has too much control now. I think, um, you know, with with Tenet, it was just a wild mess. And I haven't seen it yet. I'm, I need to. It's just a it's just a wild mess. Oh, uh, so it's like it the looks, last like three it looks, minutes. Like it looks gorgeous, like, but it's just a wild mess. Dunkirk isn't great. Interstellar is majorly flawed. Um, Inception, I think, is, is still perfect. Like a high point for me. Uh, yeah, actually, I was gonna say Inception is perfect. And then I realized no, the Prestige is perfect. Um, in, well, I I love Inception because that is the film that got me into film. Like that came out when I was sixteen, and it just changed my whole outlook on film as a as an art form. Um, so like that's like like I'll always love that film for what it did for me. Obviously. I've seen a lot better films since, but I'll always have appreciation for that film for what it did for my love of film. I think that was kind of the high point for him too, in terms of like, he was full Nolan, but he still had some studio constraints, right? It was kind of like that balance. Yeah. Because I feel like after Inception, they just gave him a blank check. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) They did. They definitely did. It's just like this dude go make like, because they knew it was guaranteed money. Like his name is just, he, he kind of became like the Spielberg of the sort of, 2010s like right. if you put his name on it he will guarantee you money so just make let him make whatever he wants yeah and for the most part it, it's true like even dunkirk was a big success financially oh, and, yeah. I, and i like dunkirk it's one of those ones i like more every time i watch it it's just i don't think it's like i don't want to say not well edited it's not well structured and i think that's my biggest issue with it like i feel like the pacing's just so off like every time i watch it i, I I think I that was, but I, I think that was more of his like he he was married to this concept of yeah. having the same timeline but from different characters' perspectives, and he became so married to that concept, it kind of he, like everything had to be sort of squashed into a particular way, and it almost sort of marred how the film could be structured because he was so married to this concept. But yeah, I, I agree with that. I'm going to start using, I just saw Hannibal for the first time last night. You know, the, the, the 2001 film. The really Scott movie? movie? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, sequel to Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. And like, not, like I'm going to start using Hannibal as my reference point for just like terrible, boring, mediocre filmmaking from like, like accomplished directors. 
Um, you know, it's famous for like the brain eating scene. And I like, it had like, I mean, Anthony Hopkins was scary because he's Anthony Hopkins. Like he's great. But there's so many lazy choices in that movie. Did y'all, but is it y'all's favorite film, by the way, before I shit all over it? Uh, uh, no, the TV show did it a lot better. I haven't seen Hannibal in about, I haven't, it's probably been about 10 years since I've seen Hannibal. I remember a Ray Liotta brain eating scene, obviously, because everyone does, but I, I remember very, very little other than that. It's just like Ridley Scott has some of the most, I mean, we're talking about Blade Runner, just so, so many creative films, like in his background and in his, in his, you know, filmography. And, and this one was just not like, there was some ter- terrifying stuff in it, but it's all from the book. So like, all you had to do is kind of like He's make it. He's the most frustrating director in the world, I think, because like he goes from making like Alien and Blade Runner and he just makes so much cookie cutter shit as well. Like he's yeah. just he's so frustrating as a as a director because you, you you kind of wonder, like, did he get lucky with Alien and Blade Runner? You know, did he get lucky with those films or was it maybe the writing is what elevated them? You know, yeah. But then, you know, he's he's so he's so hot and cold. Like, yeah, those those two. And then he has gladiator in the early 2000s which i think is has is there fun. been a, has there and, ever, has he made a film i don't think he's made a film as good as gladiator in the last 20 years has he i'm actually pulling up his i'm i'm thing. doing it as well i'm pulling up his filmography <laughs> um oh they, they announced a gladiator too <laughs> that already, has actually been in the works since the uh, first one and yeah it's, and it's batshit crazy ever have you ever um, have you ever have you heard what it's like about the original idea for it yeah, it's like it's he crazy. ends up like going through time and some shit. It's like just it's the most batshit crazy <laughs> concept for a sequel ever. It's almost like a joke. Uh, yeah. If they go ahead with it, like it'd be big balls, Ridley Scott. If he actually goes ahead with that as a concept, um, the Martian. Yep. I will say the Martian is fun. Yeah, Martian. I haven't good. seen it. Yeah, I haven't seen the Martian. Actually, I can't really um, comment on that one. And it's I will cool. be the person who defends Prometheus until I die. <laughs> I will defend that movie. Characters are so it's, stupid. I don't. I, I know, but I like so much about it. <laughs> it looks. It, it is. It's a fun film. I'm not gonna shit on Prometheus either. It's way. It's much better than Covenant. Um, yeah, I, I, and I like Damon Lindelof as a writer, which is also controversial because yeah, I definitely. Think, yeah, I I love Damon Lindelof. Um, you know, I, I grew up a Lost fan, so I've kind of followed his career uh, since then. Um, and you know, I, I think Leftovers is some of his best work. Um, but I, I liked what he did with Prometheus. You can kind of tell that he struggles with a movie format. Like he needs long form storytelling to really do anything because otherwise he's just like, let me get all this exposition out of the way in the first like 10 minutes. So I don't have to touch it anymore. <laughs> yeah. But isn't the big, compl- the big knock on him. Cause I, I've seen all of lost all the way to the last episode. And like the biggest knock on him is that he's like an incredible writer who just struggles to finish. Right. Well, I, I guess you could say that. Now, I, personally, I like the ending of Lost. Um, I do think the last season's particularly weak, but I like the last episode. Um, I, I think for un, him... Yeah, the last episode is sort of like misread by a lot of people. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And it's... For Lindelof, he also, you can tell he is just... He has this, almost like this principle of, I refuse to hold anyone's hand if I don't have to. So... That works, and if you like to read into it and come up with, like, you know, there are things in Lost that'll be called unexplained that you can kind of fit together and say, okay, that's the explanation. He doesn't tell it to me, but that's oh, the explanation yeah. for it. And he's, he, you set yourself up to get a lot of shit for that. You can, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say that's good or bad writing, but you're setting yourself up for people to hate your work. And I think that's what you, you're either going to appreciate that about him 
or you're going to despise him for it. Speaking of Christopher Nolan, just sorry, there's this podcast I really like called Blank Check, where this this comedian and uh, this film critic are like, uh, they do uh, trivia together, they're friends, and they get on and they just talk about movies. And the theme of the podcast is directors that had huge commercial success. And then like, what's the next film they made when they had a blank check? And because usually they're they're bad, is the premise. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think Chris Nolan might fit into some of that, uh, which is the connection in my brain. But um, yeah, <laughs> they're, they're always talking about this concept. And then um, they the, the funny thing is they start by the Star Wars, uh, the, the first episodes one, two and three. And they do like a bit where they say like there's no other there's no other movies that exist in the universe uh, in the world called Star Wars. And somehow this guy named George Lucas, who did some films in the 70s uh, and 80s, got funding through a toy company and he had his free reign to make three films. And they just like, put on the first three movies because they're pretty rough. Um, even in the Star Wars universe, they're pretty rough. But mm-hmm. then especially if you peel it back and think of like, if you don't know anything about Darth Vader, if you don't know anything about Luke Skywalker, like if you don't have that background. If you're just like, oh, what's this Star Wars? Interesting. Like, you know, you come out of like a like a cave and like watch it. The movie holds no like logical foundation. It's a kid's movie that puts politics in it. And uh, it's it's the most amazing thing to watch because you're like, this is made for kids. And here we are talking about trade politics. I unironically love The Phantom Menace. I'm not even <laughs> ironic about it. I love that fucking film. <laughs> Well, they hated The Phantom Menace until they saw Attack of the Clones, and then until they saw um, whatever, the Return of the Sith, or whatever, anyways, episode three. Sith, yeah. And then they all of a sudden they're like, Attack of the uh, Phantom Menace is amazing. That was kind of their premise. It was like, <laughs> well, Attack of the Clones is is pretty dreadful. It had so much promise in terms of, but it just the middle of the film is just complete nonsense. Yeah, right. that meme potential is what it's there for. <laughs> yeah, and I think Revenge of the Sith is. I think Revenge of the Sith is better than Return to the Jedi. Don't don't crucify me, but I think Revenge I, of the Sith I is better than Return to the Return <laughs> to the Jedi, and it's a hell of a lot better than any of the, the three new ones. Um, but I like Last Jedi. What's I, what's the nine called? Uh Jesus, that's Return that's a much. Skywalker. Um, uh, Rise of Skywalker. Yeah, Rise, Rise of Skywalker. Skywalker. Yeah, that's I'm I, I love Star Wars and I struggle to remember that because that's how bad that film is. It's just dreadful. Which we should have a podcast where we talk about Last Jedi because I'll defend that one as well. I just I'm gonna be the one that <laughs> that likes for me. Last Jedi, Jedi. I, Last <laughs> Jedi, right? I have no problem. I like Last Jedi is probably the most rewatchable of the three. Um, like it, it, it kind of it's kind of weird because obviously everyone talks about how the first. Uh, Force Awakens is just basically a remake of A New Hope. Oh, and yeah. In a way, Last Jedi is kind of the same because they both have the weird, weird time logic inconsistencies where, you know, they leave they leave whatever planet that was that they were hiding out on, and they're like, oh, we're going to run out of fuel in 24 hours. But yeah, Rey does her entire Jedi training in that time, and it has the same sort of time, weird time inconsistency as Empire did because everyone's like, okay. Were Han and Leia flying around for three weeks, or did Luke knock out his training in two days? So, like, it's it has the same weird time inconsistency that that mirrors Empire Strikes Back. Um, but Last Jedi, I think I think my problem is with Last Jedi, and what really sort of got me, like, Force Awakens is not is not a perfect movie, but I think it does a great job of setting up a trilogy, and the Last Jedi goes and deconstructs every single setup that the previous film made. It's the most non- nonsensical thing ever was having three different writers on each part of a trilogy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just makes no yeah. sense at all. Like it's because mm-hmm. the first thing you see, like 
the whole the whole point of Force Awakens they make such a big deal of Luke's lightsaber, and the very and within two minutes of that film opening, Luke throws away the freaking lightsaber, mm. and it's just like. <sighs> yeah, just... I, I just I, I'm always confused what Disney was expecting hiring Ryan Johnson. Like it's like they've never I, seen a I, Ryan, I really Johnson like Ryan Johnson film. But it's like, <laughs> what did you expect he was going to do? He isn't going to just make some rant, you know, just a Star Wars movie. He's He's going to put his own spin on it because that's just the type of writer he is. And I was like, yeah, y'all shouldn't have been that surprised. And I, I like <laughs> Brian Johnson as a, as a director. I just don't think he's a very good writer. I think he's good at writing concepts, but I don't think it's, it's great in, in, what's the word, execution. Mm. I, I think he has his influence. I mean, the guy loves noir. And yeah, he, Brick every, will tell you that for sure. That's, that's, that's just his passion. And he loves Agatha Christie. He's a... Uh, he 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 leaves his influence on his sleeves a lot, and I think that's really how he, how he's always going to be. Um, e- either you're going to enjoy the writing for its fun, almost outdated way of it, because you know Agatha Christie stuff can feel a little outdated. I mean, we've seen all this type of stuff millions of times now, but he likes it, and <laughs> he's going to keep <laughs> making it. Because even like Knives Out is like deconstructing. Uh, what's Her- Heracles Perot? I mean, he's pretty yeah. much deconstructing him with um, uh, Daniel Craig's character. Yeah. Because, you know, the thing with Sherlock Holmes and them is they're just, they're assholes. I mean, they are just terrible people. And they don't, you know, and the difference with him is he's trying to be a legitimately nice person. I mean, he's still got the, like the little things about that, but he's not just like a, a sociopath like yeah. Sherlock Holmes and Perot can be. Well, and Daniel Craig's got a franchise out of it too, right? If if Ryan yeah, Johnson's like, he's going to transition from Bond to um, just sitting in a chair, being uh, kind of sassy. <laughs> That's a yeah. nice <laughs> move. So uh, now we're going to talk about our our second film, uh, which is the Lady Killers, uh, the 1955 version, not not the Cohen version. So if you've been clickbaited into listening to this podcast by seeing the Lady Killers, I do apologize. Um, so. If you haven't seen it, uh, it's basically five oddball criminals planning a bank robbery, uh, rent a home and a cul-de-sac from a, a, an old widow uh, under the pretext that they are classical musicians. Uh, obviously, they're not classical musicians. They are they're essentially bank robbers. Um, what do you what do you guys think of this film? I'm I'm I've kind of weird feelings towards it. Um, I'd like to know what, what what you guys think. Kind of a big meh for me. <laughs> Yeah, like I, you know, it's you know, I, I can't hold the movie against it too much. I mean, this movie's sixty years old. A lot of these jokes we've seen and we went through, and I, I you know, I, I guess for me, um, the other comedy we did on here, we talked about. I've talked about not being a big comedy person, um, but I will say I enjoyed the um, French Mr. Bean movie, which I cannot remember the name of now. <laughs> um, I enjoyed that more just because I always felt like the gags were evolving, and you know, there was something new. Every little, every few minutes, there was something different. With this film, I kind of felt like, at least for the first two thirds of it, the same joke was getting repeated and repeated and repeated. And I just kind of got—I'm not gonna say I got tired of it. I mean, sometimes they would be funny, but it's like she's annoying. It's interrupting their plan. She's gonna do something annoying, and it's gonna interrupt their plan. And I, I guess it just didn't do much for me. Now, when the plot switches to the last act, and it gets a little bit darker, which you know makes you realize why the Coen brothers wanted to remake this film in the first place, because the last bit of it is their kind of karmic um, 
tragedy or you know their you know your comeuppance type of thing that they enjoy doing uh with their dark comedy but you know and i and i give um credit to the woman who played mrs will Wilberforce. yeah i like her i think she did a great job i think alec guinness did a great job i hope i'm saying any of these names correctly i'm terrible with names um i think they the, you know they they stole the show the rest of them were just kind of there. They were fine. Um, they were their own archetype that you just you have there for that the joke you need at the time. Um, there was a joke that did make me laugh. It was the one when they were trying to figure out what to do with her. And it's like, why don't we just make it look like a suicide? I thought that was pretty funny because it kind of felt like it came out of left field because the rest of the jokes had been kind of, eh, that's fine. That's it's it, like, I think Adam said inoffensive when I talked to him about it earlier. And I was like, yeah, they're inoffensive. And then suddenly you have a suicide joke in here about killing an old lady. So that's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, this, this film for me is it's it's just inoffensive. I It's kind of not even the kind of film that we would even generally discuss on this podcast. There's not a whole lot except for what's on surface level. There's not a ton of imagery except for uh, what one of the guys in our discord was saying about it's sort of using some kind of horror tropes and the fact that alex alec guinness's character does look like uh, nosferatu or mm-hmm. count orlock um which I, I didn't really get on first watch but you can kind of see it now and um, but there's not a whole lot to take that's not sort of on face value with it i think yeah it's it's inoffensive i don't hate this movie um, this is not an images uh, kind of movie for me. I don't hate it. It's it's fine. You know, I at the same time I'd never really go and shake someone on the street and say you gotta watch Lady Killers. But at the same time, if I if it was Sunday and I was on my couch and my remote was far away and this came on, I wouldn't get up to turn it off. That's kind of the best praise I can give this movie. Uh, <laughs> um, someone. Someone in our um, in, in the Reddit discussion for this film when we posted it, um, they just they just kind of asked. Um, they've heard that this is the quintessential British film, and and I sort of hopped on the the wagon to sort of clarify that statement, which I think is important to clarify. This film is not the quint the quintessential British film. I don't think any film can be a quintessential of a of a nation because they're all indicative of different viewpoints and different socials circles and everything like that i don't think a film can be quintessent can be the quintessential british film or the quintessential american film or or the quintessential irish film whatever it is no no one film can be that but what this film is it is very quintessentially british it's just everything about this film it's it's sort of odd uncanny weird over politeness of all the characters even all the criminals there like they literally could have just bumped this old woman off and got rid of her easy peasy. If this was like a, it's just like a seventies crime film in America. If like it's just like a Scorsese film. Katie Johnson would be dead five minutes in. They're like, they, she she would not have lived <laughs> through this film. No um, so it's just this kind of weird, uncanny, over politeness that's sort of associated with with Britain. And I think on your point about the joke sack, um, this sort of drawl, dry humor, um. That was sort of that was sort of indicative of this time. Obviously, that kind of changed with Monty Python when things got a bit more surreal in the seventies. Mm. Um, but for this kind of era, it just has this sort of drawl, dry, black humor, which obviously where the sort of suicide joke and the other sort of darkly humorous moments that happen towards the end of the film, especially that sort of that sort of last scene with Alec Guinness, which I won't say just for for spoilers, but you know that last scene with Alec, that Alec Guinness has in the film is 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 dark as hell, but it's really it's really freaking funny. Uh, yeah. Just the way it happens, um, but 
yeah, this this film for me, yeah, it's it's inoffensive and it is quintessentially British. I I I made the connection between this and The Trouble with Harry, which is a really underseen Hitchcock film because it's just unlike all of his American films that he was making at the time. It's it's a British film. It has a straw humor. It has this sort of repetition of of gag like this one has where she keeps interrupting their plan in The Trouble of Harry. If you've never seen it, um, this guy, Harry, basically dies in the first scene and the people in this village are just trying to get rid of his body because they think he's been murdered. And someone thinks he's accidentally killed him when he actually hasn't. He's just died. And they basically just end up in this scenario where they have to keep moving his body to different places. And that's that's the trouble with Harry. And, and this kind of has the same sort of recurring gag the whole way through where uh, Miss, Miss Wil- Wilbur, Wilbur Force, mm-hmm. yeah, Miss Wilbur Force keeps interrupting their plan and keeps un- inadvertently involving herself, uh, unbeknownst to her, um, to their sort of, uh, to their criminal activities. Um, so, yeah, it's it's just one of those sort of British sort of tropes in, in those sort of black comedies, really. Yeah, I don't have too much to add to what y'all are saying. I think that uh, the word charming comes to mind, which is funny considering the subject matter, but it's just a very kind of quiet, like charming comedy. I don't think it's hilarious. <clears throat> I'm sure the gag that you're talking about, the way the movie ends with Alec Guinness, I'm sure that caught a lot of people surprise and probably got a lot of big laughs in the, you know, when it, when it came out. Um, the one thing I'll say though, is that I'm kind of a, like low key falling in love with Cecil Parker. So by total coincidence, I saw this movie. He plays the, the the most polite and kind of most gentlemanly of the criminals. The one other than Alec Guinness, who's always kind of over the top polite uh, and and has a mother who's he's doing this you know crime for his mother. Oh, um, the the mustache guy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just by total coincidence, I'm working my way through the Paramount Presents releases, and I just got to the latest one, which is this old film called The Court Gesture, which completely caught me off guard. It's the worst cover art I've ever seen. It makes no sense and it and it doesn't do the film justice. It's a really good, funny kind of comedy musical from the 50, or actually the same year the Lady Killers came out, 55. And Cecil Parker plays a king in that movie, kind of a horny king. And and the, his, his running gag in, in the court gesture is that he's really excited to bring the wenches. And he sends out a caravan. It's like a literal farmer's kind of like wagon and they just go find pretty women in the community and, and like make them walk into the, like, like bring them into this wagon. And there's a scene in the court gesture where there's this farmer's wagon that just comes up to the castle full of the prettiest women in the village. It's a weird, dark, kind of dark comedy. Um, and, and he's just going on and on about the wenches and he's so excited about it. And uh, anyways, his performance in the court gesture and the lady killers is very different. And he commands kind of both roles. Like you, like, like he's one of these act, these character actors that when he's on screen, he's sort of, uh, you want to see more of him. And, and so I'm kind of, I'm kind of falling in love with him. Um, and, and he, you know, I, I think his character was very understated in lady killers, but now that I see it through the lens of what he's doing, I, I enjoyed it more. And on the other end, I actually, you know, whatever, it doesn't, doesn't matter. This is like not a very controversial film, but I actually didn't like the performance of Alec Guinness or Herbert Lom who are great, great, great actors. I, I I felt like their characters were kind of, I don't know, like the performances didn't really grab me. I thought this was a, for me, this was about Katie Johnson as Miss Wilberforce. And then Danny Green is like the brute who kind of like has surprisingly charming intellectual uh, understanding of what's happening, even though he doesn't have 
like the words to back it up. You you can see there's a there's a deeper understanding and kind of morality with him. So I like his character and and then the, obviously Miss Wilberforce and I actually really like the 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 um, when she invites those women over they come for tea and they kind of start piling in. I thought those women did a great job in that scene as well as being those kind of like busybodies and uh, you know like the joke is that they don't want to be rude and so like the, the the women that keep piling in for tea time I thought was a nice gag. So maybe the supporting actors were the were the biggest. Um, biggest part of the film that I enjoyed and my wife and I both have a little bit of a love for like old British comedy so this fits in with that um but same with you Adam I'm not going to run on the street this is no action USA I'm not running after anybody <laughs> and, and, and declaring that they have to see this um it just kind of is what it is it's like a quaint kind of charming British comedy about killing an old lady <laughs> yeah. and I don't know if it, the this was part of the joke but like they made this whole thing about how smart Alec Guinness's character is supposed to be the professor or whatever. Yeah. I didn't think his plan was all that great. I was like, I was kind of expecting, um, you know, the great train robbery, you know, sort of thing where, you know, there's all these pieces that have to come together. And I'm like, this isn't, he's like, I, this isn't this amazing plan. It works and it's fine. I just, I, I never believed, I guess that he was this incredibly smart person but i that may have been part of the joke and you know it just didn't quite land for me but i was a little confused by that i guess oh it's 11 this is not (laughs) (laughs) maybe that's maybe i'm just too used to that kind of thing where you know there's all there's all this stuff put together and it feels elaborate and you know that's when it's okay that there's like over planning and stuff like that you're like ah yeah there's you know there's no way this could happen in real life but i'm okay with it because it's kind of fun what is those those Jesse Eisenberg and Woody uh, Woody Harrelson movies? Is it now you uh, see, now me? see me, right? Those are like kind of the extreme of this, right? Yeah, yeah. very extreme. <laughs> yeah. The impossibility, not the improbability. I've seen that. I've seen that scene, that meme scene from the second <laughs> one, where the card moves around everyone. And it's kind of like if you're if you're um if you're ever on the Reddit um the movie Circle Jerk. So I've got it. I don't, oh, know on, I don't know if you're on that one, but it's often called like peak Kino is what they would call it. Um, <laughs> I've seen that. I've never seen any of the movies, but I've seen that scene. And it's pretty. It's pretty funny. How stupid it is. It, it doesn't make it better in context either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know that there's too much else to say about this. I was gonna, you know, I was kind of curious if y'all had a particular, you know, favorite Alec Guinness role um, outside of this. I don't know if, if if anything comes to mind for y'all. Um. I, I think his work with David Lean is his best. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's going to be a pretty standard one, but The Bridge on the River Kwai, you know, he won his he won an Oscar for that, and mm-hmm. it's kind of the easy one to pick to. But, yeah, you know, I, I think he does great in Lawrence of Arabia, and I was telling Adam about this earlier. You know, it's weird because that's basically blackface, but, you know, it was the <laughs> 60s. And, and I, ha- I can't say his performance was bad at all. He, he's very good in it. Um, but, you know, I'm going to have to go with Bridge on the River Kwai. And I've <laughs> I've never seen Alec Guinness in anything other than this and Star Wars. So I'm gonna go Ben Kenobi. Ben, ben Kenobi for a hundred dollars, please, Alex. Um, that's gonna be that's gonna be my answer. Uh, yeah, even with this, it's just his voice. Like his voice does not change in this film. So if I like close my eyes when he's talking, it's just old Ben talking, <laughs> uh, which is kind of jarring. Then when I open my eyes and this this weird gaunt book man <laughs> instead um yeah ben, ben kenobi 
Ben Kenobi's uh, years before he became sober. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, yeah, I, you know, if you know, we we talk about our personal like letterbox and and, and Reddit kind of pages. The image that I have on my um, red, subreddit is Lawrence of Arabia, and for for me, like when I saw that movie, I I just I I think like I don't know a lot of the technical side of film. I don't have a background in, in film in that sense, but I was just like I my eyes didn't leave the screen for what is it like three and a half hours? It's some it's crazy. It's, it's long. such a beautiful film. It's so beautiful. Yeah, I just was like, like it's it's weird to say, but like the camera almost became like the the camera work almost became like another story device. It was just like the the way that they did close ups and the way that they did long shots and then wide shots and just everything in that movie was just like so perfectly framed and shot. And um, so I have a, I have a huge huge soft spot for that um, movie. So that that wins out for me, I think. But yeah, and I and I really want to see that on seventy millimeter. I, I really want to see that in theaters. Yeah. I think I think it's one of those films that's just necessary. Where would really you see that? Would you like an IMAX screen? Like where would you where would you see that? <sighs> It, around here, nowhere. Uh, I mean, that's kind of the thing, you know. When we we couldn't even get the seventy millimeter uh, hateful eight when it was going around on the road show. We just don't have anywhere like that here. Mm. Um, I know in Texas, y'all have a little bit more of a film scene down there, so I don't know if that would be a little bit more common. What, what's the ideal screen to see that on, though? Because I can't imagine it's just a regular movie screen, right? Well, what you, really the important thing is if you're doing this um correctly would be more of the film itself the actual 70 millimeter instead of you know having a 35 you're having the much taller film so it's not st it's stretching and everything else um you'll get much more detail into it and i believe the film was filmed in 65 i'd have to double check on that okay. um but you know that's that's typically what you want in these like epic films is the bigger the screen and the you know the using the 65 or 70 millimeter film um, to really bring out that detail because then you know that can be the equivalent of 16 18 20k and a lot of times wow okay yeah it's it, that's the way i'd love to see it i have the 4k thankfully uh and it looks great but hopefully they'll make an individual since you're a big fan of the movie yeah so uh, now we come into our final segment which as always is our any other business where we just talk about something we've seen recently that we want to put a spotlight on doesn't have to be criterion doesn't have to be good just if you like it and you want to talk about it um so we'll start with you chris what what have you seen recently that that, that you liked and you want to put a spotlight on um i, I think what I, what i'd like to do is I, I finally took i did the painstaking kind of hard thing i made a top 100 list but i did it a bit differently so i i don't trust my memory i've been watching movies for 20 years but i took about an eight year break eight or nine year break um just trying to get some businesses off the ground and then having a son, just like a lot of life got in the way. So uh, kind of like March or February-ish of last year was when I started really diving in again. So I didn't really trust my memory going back beyond that. So instead of a, a full like lifetime top 100, I just did uh, kind of a rolling one. And, you know, I think I wound up watching well over 300 movies last year. So I, I imagine it's going to be the case this year as well. So it shouldn't be hard to, to backfill that up with, <laughs> with some stuff. Um, you know, right now it's pretty Kurosawa heavy because that was my big theme last year was running through all of his, um, his entire filmography and he's a good filmmaker. <laughs> he's very talented. So my top 100 is pretty Kurosawa heavy this year. It's going to be Fellini. I'm starting here in a, in a few weeks. So I have to imagine that's going to in, infiltrate in a big way. Um, but as it stands of today, uh, the top, the top 10 is Rashomon, 
And then the Decalogue, which I don't know if you all have any strong opinions on that. I had no idea how to break that up. So I just put it all as one film, which is probably not, it's probably cheating a bit, but Decalogue, um, Ikiru, uh, Adaptation, Seven Samurai, Once Upon a Time in the West, uh, the Lubitsch film, To Be or Not To Be, uh, Seven Seal, uh, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, because Bunuel had to be up there somewhere. And then rounding out is the Godard's A Woman is a Woman. Um, uh, yeah, that's it. Just um, I really love those. Um, I, I could just watch them again and again. Um, uh, other than that, I think I already talked about Court Gesture, which was probably the one I would wanted to talk about, or I would have wanted to talk about. Uh, it just completely caught me off guard, and it's one of those ones where you have to kind of trick the brain because the cover art is so bad. It just makes it look like a terribly boring film. Um, and I don't really like Technicolor, like. I don't know if that I don't know if other people love it, but like I just those those rich colors and the saturation of, of colors kind of just put me off immediately. <laughs> um, and but I uh, this film uses it well and it, and it kind of really leans into the cheesiness aspect. And it has these really crazy choreographed dance numbers, kind of like almost if Busby Berkeley were trying to make like a. Um, like a Robin Hood tale or something and. and it's just, yeah, these really elaborate dance numbers. You can tell it was a huge production, uh, and it's also funny. Like, it's just good writing. So uh, that one caught me off guard. Once you watch The Red Shoes, you will learn to love Technicolor. Okay, good that's, to know. That's the best Technicolor film ever. How, how do you feel about, like, Argento's, like, Suspiria and stuff? That's not Technicolor, but it's using its own different process that kind of, like, does, the, you know, it, it brings a lot of attention to the color. Uh, I, I mean, I, I love it. I, okay. I, love, I love what he did with that. I think it's just something about, uh, I don't even know how to best describe it. It's like a lot of the Technicolor movies, they're trying to create this, it's like reality, but like a better reality, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, and I just don't want, like, I don't want it. Um, but if it's done in like an artistic way or somewhere it's like the colors used for a particular reason, that's, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, because Spiri is more dreamlike, I guess you would say. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Now, with Technicolor, the colors can almost look a bit fake, which yeah. is kind of weird yeah. to say. But yeah, Technicolor sometimes can just look a bit hokey or or just it just looks like fake color. It's just kind of weird sometimes. But Red Shoes, man, that film's, that film's so good. All right, I'll try, to, I'll try to sneak it in here in the next two weeks. Definitely. Now, what about you? What about you, Zach? Um, well, I don't have anything like under the radar to really talk about. I, I mentioned that I was going through a John Carpenter binge. So I'm, I'm in the middle of that. Uh, last night I watched uh, big trouble in little China. It's one of my favorites of his. Um, and I guess the, really the main thing to bring, I mean, people have talked about this movie. Everyone kind of gets the idea of it. You're, you know, um, Jack, uh, Kurt Russell is as Jack Burton. He's a guy who thinks he's the hero of the story and he's not, he's, uh, you know, the whole thing is the, um, the other guys, you know, he's the one trying to save the girl. He's the one that is doing all the fighting. He's the one, he's really the protagonist of the film. Um, but what I guess I really want to bring attention to here is going through these again. Um, you know, when you talk about genre filmmakers and trying to put these messages into their films and with big trouble, you can always go into, um, you know, the idea of Americans, I, I what's the best way but sticking their nose in foreign affairs they don't have any business being in stuff like that yeah. and you know the, you don't have to read it that way that's kind of the great thing about most of carpenter's genre films is even if he does have a message for it 
you can enjoy it without it. And it kind of makes me appreciate him more than um, Paul Verhoeven. I, I hope I said his last name correctly. Um, I read it all the time, but I can't do it. Um, as much as I like his films as well, um, he's one of those people that I guess um, when he tries to put messages, if you overthink his message for more than like a minute, it seems to fall apart. You know, like I love RoboCop. If you actually go in through like what his message is for that film and how much how much center stage it takes, it's like it's not really that great of a message. It can kind of be, you know, it kind of contradicts itself a lot. And, uh, you know, it's just made me kind of really appreciate what Carpenter did for that. You know, he's not known except for, you know, obviously they live. But even something like Big Trouble in Little China, where, you know, there's these messages you can delve from it, especially from Jack Burton as a character. But it doesn't matter. You can read into it, but it never takes center stage over the film itself. Yeah. The film at the end of the day is supposed to be a fun romp. It's supposed to be ridiculous and it and it succeeds at that. Um, you don't have to read any of that into it. And I, I it makes me appreciate him a lot more than um Paul Verhoeven's. Yeah, work. Paul Verhoeven would never be called subtle. <laughs> no, not at all. Like I love Robocop, but it's revenge porn. Like it's this whole thing about like oh, well, uh, the media causes these police states. And I'm like, great original idea. And it's like, uh, and then it's like, well, your main character is that police state. And it's like, so it's just revenge porn. And I love RoboCop. I watch RoboCop a lot, but not for the message. Didn't he do what? He did Showgirls as well, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Showgirls is an interesting one. Like, um, <laughs> it used to be called one of the worst. I don't, I don't know anybody to actually take, you know, call it the worst. Film ever anymore. It's been reevaluated. Yeah, it's been reevaluated yeah, in the last few years. I think my favorite Verhoeven would be um, Total Recall. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love Total Recall. Yeah, it's a great film. And uh, on the point of Big Trouble in Little China, it's kind of like the anti white savior movie because Jack Burton ends up getting in the way most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> rather like, than he, actually being the white savior. And, you know, he, he of course, you know, uh, I'm not going to spoil anything, but he does play a big part at the end. But it's an accident. It's because he's so stupid that it works out. And, yeah. you know, it, it really makes you, you know, I know, uh, you know, going through Carpenter interviews, it upset him so much because there was so much controversy when that movie was coming out because of that whole white savior aspect. And, you know, he he casted Asian actors and there's three white characters in the whole movie. And he did so much work on like the the sets and doing so much work with these actors. And, it, I, you know, you can tell, like, it's one of those things where it's like, maybe don't, and, you know, it's a problem we still have today. Don't maybe judge the movie before you actually see the context of it. <laughs> it could make a huge difference for it. Would I be safe to say that you have the Arrow release? I, I do, and I just ordered the Scream Factory Steelbook as well. Okay. No, so I was going to say, like, I don't know if you've seen the interview with John Carpenter, because I have that one as well, the Arrow, and John Carpenter has an interview in it where he talks about how, the film can sometimes be misconstrued or misunderstood and how it kind of pisses them off that everyone thinks Jack Burton's this action hero when he's not, he's just an idiot. Like, Yeah, I mean, he's supposed to be uh, John Wayne without a clue. That was how <laughs> <Yeah>. he described. <laughs> <laughs> but I, what do you got? Yeah, well, I suppose, I'll, as I was mentioning earlier, um, I'm going to keep things, that's not going to be exactly a deep cut. Um, Blade Runner is what I watched recently as mm-hmm. part of my uh, the Criterion film challenge that's going on on Letterboxd uh, week 5 was to pick something that Criterion released on Laserdisc um, so obviously I went through like all their Laserdisc titles and what jumped out at me was Blade Runner because um, I haven't seen it in about 6 or 7 years I bought the DVD when I was like 16 when I first started getting it to film and I literally only upgraded that DVD to Blu-ray 
like during the summer, but I never actually got around to watching it. So it showed up and I thought, hey, I'll watch Blade Runner. I'll see if it holds up because uh, uh, by no exaggeration, I've definitely seen like up until like I rewatched it, not including the most recent rewatch. I've seen that film at least 20 times, like at least because I was just in love with it. And yeah, this, this, I was really afraid I was going to not like it as much. I should not have been afraid. This film is so freaking good. Everything about this movie is just an absolute masterclass. And it sort of ties into what we were talking about earlier, Ridley Scott being so hit and miss. This is this is his masterpiece. I know people, alien fans, are going to come and knock on my door now, but Blade Runner is his masterpiece. The film oozes mood and cool. The soundtrack by Vangelis is just amazing. And everyone knows Vangelis more for uh, Chariots of Fire. Um, but his Blade Runner score is incredible. Harrison Ford plays the the morally gray character so well everyone when you watch harrison ford he's you know he's a snarky he's snarky but he's a hero you know he's he's in like indiana jones and harrison ford they're a bit snarky but they're a hero they're not a bad person whereas with he threads that line with blade runner you know he has some dark moments in this film he's very he's he's morally gray and it's probably as as morally gray as you'll see harrison ford maybe outside of that film he did that horror film he did was that what lies beneath or something like that um this probably sort of earliest iteration where you'd see like a non-heroic harrison ford character sean young is great even though she's playing a replicant she just has so much emotion and vulnerability in her role rutger hauer what can you really say about rutger hauer's role in blade runner Uh, especially that final monologue which is just incredible you'd have to have an absolute heart of stone to not have some sort of feeling of apathy when or not apathy of empathy um when rutger Hauer does his final monologue in that film yeah. but what, what i love about it and which i didn't really understand a whole lot when i first watched it but i i understand a lot more now is how much of a film noir this is so much about this film just screams noir it has mm-hmm. the femme fatale it has the morally gray detective it has just a pure atmospheric moodiness the urban decay the the spotlights the shadows it's and even then, like the film is kind of the, the 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 plot thread, the whole sort of plot is is played very loose a lot of the time as well, um, which is something that you'd see a lot in film noirs. Um, but yeah, this this film, like I don't I don't give a lot of films ten out of ten. I am very I'm very um, picky when it comes to me rating a film ten out of ten. This is one of the few films I'll say this is a ten out of ten perfect film. I wouldn't change a single aspect of it. So. Uh, this film, Minority Report, or um, what's the other one? Uh, Total Recall. Which one is your favorite Philip K. Dick story? Oh, Blade Runner, hundred percent. Even though it's not very overly connected to the do Android stream of Electric Sheep. Um, in fact, Blade Runner is the title of Blade Runner is nowhere in that film. It was actually taken from a different sci-fi novel, and they thought it was a cool name. So that's which is kind of crazy when you think about it. You know, obviously the novel is called "Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep." At no point in the film are they referred to as Blade Runners. Blade Runner is not mentioned at any at all in the film. It's literally a different title that I believe it was the the first writer was Hampton Fancher. I believe he saw it on a bookshelf and thought that's a cool title. Let's buy the rights to that film just so that we can name this other film this title, <laughs> uh, which is it's just kind of crazy. Total Recall is, is super fun, like. If you if you want to watch something that's just fun, Total Recall is where to go. But if you want to watch like a piece of art, Blade Runner all day. This is going to be a weird comparison, um, but talking about uh, uh, Ridley Scott and how hit and miss he is, 
And, you know, he's also one of those ones where the director's cut is finally where you get, like, his good movie. Because a lot of times, a lot of his good movies come out of his director's cut. You have Final Cut for Blade Runner. Alien, I can take or leave. You know, they're the same length. They're not really much different. Um, Take that out. But, you know, he kind of reminds me, like, Zack Snyder reminds me a lot of that as well. Um, You know, the one that completely hit or miss. It almost seems like an accident when he does something right. And then he has director's cuts that tend to have more people like um, than his theatricals. It's just a weird comparison I thought about when you were talking about it. I didn't realize Zack Snyder had a hit. Uh, I mean, I, I personally really love Dawn of the Dead. Uh, oh, yeah, I forgot he Dawn made of, that. Yeah, I Dawn forgot of the Dead, that. I like 300. Um, Watchmen, I'll always love, even though I like the... Uh, the co- I like everything with Watchmen, honestly. So I'm, I'm a big fan of his version, at least the uh, director's cut of it. Um, not as much the theatrical. The films are just a bit too over-stylized for me. It's kind of He's the same way yeah, I don't like... a lot of style up front. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like with Sin City. I just I just can't stand Sin City because just, I just can't stand the over-stylization of it, which I know is obviously to, to you know, echo the, the style of the, of the graphic novel it's based on. But it's just jarring to me. Watch. Yeah, I guess if you're doing Frank Miller, it's like directors feel like they have to. <laughs> like, I'm doing a Frank Miller comic, because I mean, that's the same thing with Snyder. Every comic movie he's done has been based on Frank Miller, um, except for Watchmen. Um, and so I, I think it's uh, I think it's just almost a little like, like Robert Rodriguez also felt it was like, oh, yeah, we'll just go ahead and super stylize the hell out of this film and yeah. go with that. Zack Snyder's an interesting one, because I love Dawn of the Dead. I thought that was so fun. Like, just the the reimagining of that and then 300 and then Watchmen, and then legend of the guardians was pretty good actually did y'all see that the animated i film? do I, I like that one and um the director's cut of sucker punch is fun i wouldn't call it good but it, it's pretty fun and ridiculous yeah, sucker punch and then all of a sudden man of steel just like blue chunks like it was so bad uh i don't know if that's a widely shared opinion i hate i didn't like that movie at all um and then he kind of like just went downhill from there um Suicide Squad is like almost no story. Oh, he's an executive producer. I'm getting these. No, he, uh, he, he, then he did BBS and that's kind of about like talking about last Jedi, honestly, like, yeah, very passionate people on both sides for Batman versus Superman. And, uh, now he's doing his version of justice league, which comes out in two months. Yeah. That's a mess of a movie as well, but I suppose we can't really blame Snyder for that too much. Cause no, that, from what I understand, only about 30 minutes of what he, filmed is in that movie yeah yeah, yeah. So, so that's i'll, I'll reserve judgment on justice league till I, yeah until i see his cut i'll reserve judgment on justice league because it's basically you can't really call it as Zack Snyder. it's a joss whedon movie you know because it builds like a joss whedon movie <laughs> when you watch it you're like yeah this is joss whedon this feels yeah. like avengers except not good yeah at least at least the first avengers movie was good yeah just not it, it, it's like he wanted to redo age of ultron yeah for justice league <laughs> And that wraps up this week's episode of They Live By Film. You can catch uh, me, Chris, and Zach on our Letterboxd or Reddit accounts, uh, the links of which will be in the description. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at the